Hello and welcome to another Hallastabur Book Club. There's unfortunately a duck here. I'm in a garden and there's a duck, a very persistent duck, trying to ruin, trying to ruin this. It's Ross, with uh, Francesca Stavrakopoulou uh, about a fantastic book. Oh, now there's a frog here. <laughs> this is really ruining this. <laughs> there's people going to listen to this and they're very... There's a pig here now. Uh, fantastic book, God and Anatomy. I hope you will enjoy it. Do recommend this podcast to other people if you like. It's, it's like... Uh, I'm like Dr. Doolittle here. I'm surrounded by animals. What's that? That's not an animal. <laughs> Uh, thank you very Be much back. for listening. See you again. Bye Goodbye. Bye. Hello, welcome to another book club. This week we are joined by Francesca. Trance- I can't believe I've messed up the Francesca again. That's what I did last time. I'm so, I'm so worried about the Stavrakopoulou that I can do easily that I can't say Francesca. Francesca Stavrakopoulou, uh, her fantastic book, God and Anatomy. Hello, Francesca. How Professor Francesca. Hello, Professor. it's nice to see you again. Lovely to see you. You've been on Rahel of course, uh, and uh, love to have you back. We, and we did briefly talk about this book then that was before publishing yeah um but uh, it's it's an amazing book Francesca. it's uh really, it's, really? You know, it's, it's, i think so it's very entertaining it's academic and it's very clever and I'm, I'm not claiming i understood all of it but um or followed all of it i listened to it on the audiobook which is always a delight but it's you know it's very you draw the readers in it's it's and it's you know anyone who's interested in um biblical criticism or what or who god is should definitely have a read or a listen. What was the genesis? I would have said that anyway, but it's very clever now said to you. What where did this book come from for you? How, how did it all begin for you? Um well, I talk a little I talk a bit about it at the beginning of the book in that yeah. I I I'm an atheist. I always have been um and definitely always will be, but I was always really curious about religion. I just I just thought not because I thought it was balmy, but because I thought I just didn't understand what motivated people to believe in otherworldly beings. And, um, you know, there's some religion in my family, like my grandparents and that. But but yeah, so I went off to do my degree in theology at Oxford when I was 18 because I was just and I did a theology degree. And Oxford, it was like quite a kind of traditional sort of Christian, Western Christian thing. And everyone was religious. And and so I was a bit of an outsider. But I just found it really fascinating when no one was talking. So I started reading these biblical texts properly for the first time when I was at university. And it seemed very obvious to me that this was a God who um, was like the ancient Greek gods and goddesses who had a body and um, a temper and was kind of quite capricious. (laughs) um, and, And I just but no one was talking about that when I was at university. And so in a way, this is the book that I wanted to read when I was at university. Um. And it's, and it's, you know, obviously after my degree, I went on and did my master's and my doctorate and specialising in all this kind of stuff and and I now teach it. Um, so a lot of this has come out of the stuff that I do with my own students, my own undergraduates um, at Exeter. And yeah. I just thought, I'm going to write this stuff down. And so I did. <laughs> and here it is. <laughs> and so it's basically the idea that we now view God uh, or generally people view God or the Christian God or the Jewish God as um a sort of invisible force a spirit mm. somewhere up in heaven that it, that doesn't have a body yeah um but uh but your argument and your your research seems to show that certainly in pre-biblical times and a bit in biblical times yeah um that uh that he was considered to be like uh, basically a a slightly big bloke 
<laughs> yeah i mean i think that's the thing because you know so judaism and christianity as we know them are very broadly speaking post-biblical religions in the sense that these religions developed after the texts that we find in what christians call the old testament and jewish people call tanakh after those texts were written and after the new testament texts were written so that idea that god is completely disembodied immaterial and the idea that the, the spiritual realm, whatever that is, is completely immaterial. They're relatively late developments in the career of God. Mm-hmm. So I'm interested in like this early history of the deity. Um, and I think we need to take seriously the fact that the biblical texts themselves, most of them are quite comfortable with the idea that God has a body. And it's a male body. It's human shaped. It's kind of got male bits. Um, and I think that's quite important um, to kind of register that and to like grapple with it given you know the world and patriarchy and and all that other stuff I think it's quite important to kind of recognize that this is a god that has changed massively over thousands of years sure and I think that's what I mean I sort of like fancy myself as someone who's a little bit of a biblical scholar but very early in the book uh I was I was sort of confronted with something that I'd never come across I guess I've mainly sort of been interested in Jesus and the New Testament, not so much the Old Testament. Uh, but uh, there's a revelation quite early on. I don't want to give spoilers, but I'm going to have to. Uh, that Jesus, uh, that God, our God, Yahweh, if you want to call him that, if that's his name, um, has a dad and yeah. lots of brothers. And is part of a, this panoply of, of gods rather than a, than one God on his own. So, um, which presumably comes from mainly from from older texts than than the bible yeah i mean things like a lot of the traditions that we have in the bible you know have an earlier history and so you get a lot of older mythology that's kind of being filtered through into these different biblical traditions like you know and that extends into the new testament text as well but yeah this idea that you know it was very much this was a, a minor deity originally from you know quite a small like polytheistic context within a pantheon he sort of gradually rises up through the ranks and takes on the roles and titles of his dad, um, the high god Ale. Um, and so in that sense, he's very similar to, you know, to exactly the sorts of deities that we find in ancient Egypt and Mesopotamia and Greece and Rome. So I kind of wanted to put him back in his natural habitat and sort of say, yeah. you know, where does where does this idea come from? And And even when you get to the point where this is a deity who is being portrayed in more monotheistic terms, so in other words, that he is the only deity, he's still not on his own in the heavenly realms you know he's still got kind of these other divine colleagues and peers and um and and it's that stuff is is rich throughout all the biblical texts and and it's great to see the bible in that way you know people think the bible's really boring or irrelevant you know if they're not believers and if they are believers they think it's absolutely god's truth and and i just want to show that the bible's neither of those things it's actually like far more interesting and fascinating and cool yeah and so all the brother, all the brothers. Oh, uh, let's call them they, cousins. 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 Yeah. Have they sort of become? Have they become like the angels? Is that is that sort of as as the story has progressed, they've become sort of angelic horde of people. Yeah. Well, some of them. 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 Yeah. Some of them have become sort of vilified. So some someone like the figure of the Satan. Um, yeah. And there's a definite article in front of that name. I mean, Satan in Hebrew basically means something like adversary or tester or accuser, and he's basically. God's right hand man in in the book of Job, for example, he's like kind yeah. of his justice minister who goes around testing people, sort of policing the earthly realm a bit. But then he obviously he gets vilified and sort of relegated later on. But then other deities, 
equally become very vilified, like the god Baal. Um, but then you get, you know, some of his divine messengers. These are kind of like like messengers, you know, that these sort of emissaries that kind of shuttle between the heavens and, and the earthly realm. They kind of get relegated into these kind of angelic figures. But then they kind of get remythologized later. They become Gabriel and Michael, you know, these kind of archangel figures. Um, so, yeah, it's kind of it's a lot about adoption and adaption and recycling, upcycling and downcycling of divine yeah. beings. I mean, it's very, it's fascinating to see how really, I mean, I'm fascinated by that, by, about how religions all change and adapt and, and become totally different things. Uh, you would sort of think if you, I mean, in a way, you would feel the earliest texts must be the most accurate text, text for, in terms of you were going to believe in something. You think, well, I have to go right, right to the beginning because obviously those will be, those are the least diluted by human thought or whatever, <laughs> even though it must all be a little bit. But uh, but people don't, you know, religious people don't tend to, I mean, even really read their own, the, the main books, I think, do they? If you, if you read just even the Bible, you'd get a lot of this stuff. Yeah, I mean, and that's the thing. So even when you read the Bible, like people think that, oh, the book of Genesis must be the earliest because it's talking about origins and beginnings of the cosmos and it's at the very beginning of the Bible. But that's one of the latest books in the Old Testament. So like a more sort of, mythologically a lot of that the older material is found in things like some of the old poems that you get in the bible and some of the psalms in the book of job even which is quite a late text but is like got very early poetic and mythological ideas in it so mm-hmm. it's primarily comparing that mythology that's kind of threaded through the biblical texts with similar um mythologies from close cultures like you know ancient what we call canaanite cultures and Mesopotamian cultures that you actually better understand the the broader mythological and cultural landscape and that's that's where you need to locate that deity not in this kind of world that's really shaped by Christianity and Judaism later on and the way it, it retrojects its preferred theology its later theology back onto the text you've got to put the text in their original cultural context and some of these mm. are iron age and we need to to see them in that way yeah so ale is that was the original god and even in the in the bible like the the uh, the earlier prophets sort of seemed to be worshiping ale and then i quite enjoyed the bit i think where yahweh comes along and goes it's me it was it was me all along I was yeah, pretending, yeah. I was it is pretending. amazing so like when when moses <laughs> when, when moses meets yahweh in the book of exodus you know there's the big scene at the burning bush and this voice is speaking to moses out of the flames and and yahweh says oh yeah so you know how um, your ancestors, Abraham and I, you know, you know how they were worshipping um, El Shaddai and Moses, yes, and he says, well, actually, that was me. Oh, I mean, my name's Yahweh, really, but actually, you know, it, uh, you know, I was only known to them by my name, El, but actually it, it's, I mean, it's classic sort of spin doctoring. It's sort of trying to identify the god Yahweh with the older kind of god Ale and sort of bringing them together, like trying to say that these are one and the same. Um, yeah. When originally they were, they were understood as two distinct deities. And you get reflections of, how they're understood but as that's, that's, that's basically why the religions are changing isn't it in, throughout as we go through and why this whole uh change from a bodily to a non-bodily god goes because it, they're you're trying to get more converts you're trying to you're trying to meld together two different groups of people who believe two opposing things and so you have to come up with compromises that that make those things work yeah and also you know that's how god how yahweh himself sort of changes i mean because these biblical texts are written in times of like massive cultural upheaval. I mean, you know, invasion by the Assyrians and kind of subjugation by them and then sort of destruction by the Babylonians and then the Persians come along and then the Greeks and then, the, you know, and so it's it's like 
all of these kind of massive cultural shifts and the biblical texts are written primarily by elite urban people. Um, so they're really at the kind of the forefront of these massive political and cultural changes. And so, you know, their, their whole world is, is, is sort of falling apart around them quite often. And, and what do you do? You know, is this a deity who used to be a warrior god who used to fight for you? And now all of a sudden, you know, you're taken off into captivity to some foreign land. And you're like, well, what the hell does this mean about about our deity? And so it's those sorts of cultural and political shifts that that force a shift in theology. And that sort of changes the nature of the deity even more. So kind of by the time you enter the, the Greek period, when certain philosophical ideas are really starting to take hold about a distinction between the spiritual and the earthly um, and the material and the immaterial, that really starts to impact theology as well much later. So all of those things kind of mean that God, yeah, he's sort of like his body is gradually eradicated over centuries and centuries and centuries. So, you know, I was reading a few of the reviews of the book, which are mainly very, very good. And weirdly, the Church Times is is very behind it. Uh, the Times, the uh, the correspondent in the Times was upset because uh, uh, they believe that it's clearly all the talk of God's body in the in the Bible is metaphorical. Yeah. Um, so what makes you think that it isn't metaphorical and that it is actual in, a, in, in brief without saying the whole book? Um. Primarily because you look at the ways in which the deities were depicted, not just in terms of text, but in terms of icons, um, in terms of sort of visual culture. And they were very much understood to have human-shaped bodies. Um, and so humans had God-shaped bodies. And so even when you do find, in even much later post-biblical theologies, you know, people have a hard time letting go of the language of the body of God. So, for example, um, scholars are increasingly agreed people in my field that there probably were images of God that were used in worship and that's why you, it's banned in one of the Ten Commandments you know you don't ban something unless yeah. people are doing it um so God was understood was imaged as having this God-shaped body but even like later theologies you know people can't let go of the idea we talk about God seeing us or hearing us or talking to us you know that's all all that body language doesn't come simply out of metaphor it comes out of you know, and we have archaeological evidence for the fact that people did conceive of their body, of, of gods as having human shaped bodies. And Yahweh was no different. I thought that review in the Times was really interesting because um, I say interesting in a very loose uh, sense. <laughs> um, because I clearly, the reviewer, and I know authors often say this, but clearly the reviewer hadn't bothered to read the introduction <laughs> to <laughs> the book. Do you know what I mean? It's like, oh, dudes, just take the time to read the intro. Like I say to my students. Um, but yeah, but yeah, it's been great. I mean, like the Church Times review was was um, was surprisingly um, positive. Um, Church yeah. Times hasn't always liked me very much in what I do. <laughs> uh, well, you know, but it's also obviously the very start of the Bible, which isn't from the very start, as you've just said. But you know that God makes man in his in his image. If he's if he doesn't have an image, then it you know there's there's plenty of clues in there that at least at some point. Yeah, God I mean that's been. the thing. And in in that passage, when he says he makes man in his image and likeness, those you know just a few two chapters later, the same language is used to talk about the physical likeness between Adam and one of his sons, and the same terms yeah. are used in the biblical text to talk about the likeness of cult statues to the gods that they represent. So when God's using that language, I mean, that's what, that's exactly what it means. It means a physical likeness, a, a visual corporeal likeness. And, you yeah, know, yeah. Jewish rabbis are completely happy with this idea in the sixth century, you know, fourth century, third century BC, like CE, they were totally happy with that idea. So it's, um, 
it's more of a hang up of kind of a certain kind of Christian male, I think, um, is, is my experience than it is anybody else. Yeah, but people, you know, it's it's a obviously when you're a, a biblical scholar and you're not religious yourself as well, there's a, an extra level to it. People who have strong beliefs about something don't want those beliefs challenged. It's sort of what religion's about, isn't it? It's sort of the reason why these things have all changed because they're trying to get a group of people all to believe the same stuff and questioning it makes it fall apart. So, you know, anyone questioning anything is a problem. But um, like I say, I just sort of think like if you're going back to the pre, <laughs> going to the original sources, it's harder to argue with those than the, the later ones, which obviously have been uh, influenced by by human thoughts. But um, you know, it, it's it's crazy to me that people can believe something and then not want to. You know, if you really believe it, there's there's no problem in people asking questions, and so anything that doesn't let you ask questions is suspicious immediately. Isn't it? I think that's exactly right. And you know, you think about like the Bible itself, the Christian Bible and the Jewish Bible, like the the biblical writers and the earliest compilers of all these texts were really happy with the idea of contradiction and challenge and questioning their beliefs and their faith because you've got so many contradictions. Like, look at you know, got four gospels for example in the New Testament, right? Four different versions of the Jesus story none of which like exactly match up plus all the other gospels that didn't make it into the final collection um which are even more crazy which we you and I talked about when we last saw each other um mm. but these ancient compilers these ancient religious thinkers were completely comfortable with the idea of differences of opinion and challenge so for people today to kind of say well that's not you know the bible doesn't, doesn't say that and they're actually you know you need to sit more comfortably i always tell my students this sit more comfortably with the idea of contradiction and ambiguity and challenge because the, the bible itself is sits comfortably with those ideas as well mm -hmm. um so we've got this very strange sense of treating the bible like it's some kind of extraordinary object you know but what my book does i hope i've shown is that like let, let's look at these texts like we look we would look at ancient greek mythologies and, and legends and traditions yeah. you know why should we treat this god of the bible and these biblical texts any differently than we would any other kind of ancient literature from from this time and place um so yeah that's what this book does and also go back and worship Aeol because he's the original one and he's been knocked off by this uh, yeah. usurper so you're worshiping the wrong god, god guys go, go back because <laughs> Aeol so you're saying did you say this in the book that Israel I mean you know is is that that's sort of the clue that god the original god was Aeol because Israel is named after Aeol I mean that Aeol is the theophoric elements yeah. the divine name yeah. in there but and you've got this yeah. story in Genesis where Jacob like the great founder of Israel one of the great ancestors who he's, he, he builds an altar to Aeol the Aeol the god of Israel you know and it's, it's spelt out very clearly um yeah. in the Hebrew so yeah Oh, well, it's it's all very interesting. And we'll talk a bit more about the book. I mean, I, I um, what it's I think again as a lay person, it's great that you um, you often the way into a subject in this book is is a, a, another example or a modern example. You you talk about walking in the in God's footsteps in Syria and uh, um, a hidden Michelangelo sculpture, which is very interesting that got uh, that got hidden away because there was a. Uh, imperfection in Jesus' yeah. face yeah. on the marble right there, which must have been annoying for Michelangelo. I know, can you imagine? <laughs> <laughs> Just, Just at the end, end as well. Uh, you know, there's comparisons with Trump and stuff. So there's there's lots of things to, to draw you in. Was that, because I think you're a very entertaining writer. And, it's, and again, I think that often is, uh, some academics don't like 
someone being funny or mm. or being interesting <laughs> or not being dry. Is that an important part of the writing process for you to use your own humour and your own experience? Oh, definitely. Like, because I mean, as I said, like this book in some ways comes out of my teaching. It's how I it's how I do my lectures at at work. You know, it's like how do you draw students in? Like most of whom yeah. are either going to think this is really boring or difficult. So how do you draw the students in? It's the same way. How do you draw the readers in? And and the thing is, this stuff is fun. Do you know what I mean? Like just because it's about religion doesn't mean say we should take it so bloody seriously. And it's and it is the most fascinating subject. So like, how can it not be fun? But I think yeah, when I was writing, I wanted you know this is what I think. This is this is the way I understand it, and this is the way that I want people to to get as excited about this ancient stuff as I am. And so by you know using comparisons like you you know. <laughs> with Donald Trump's kind of um <laughs> Donald Trump's kind of penis problems um and, and nuclear war problems um but cast yeah. as a phallic kind of um insecure phallic masculinity but you know things like that and Michelangelo sculptures and you know the discovery of various other ancient artifacts I talk about and what we do with dead bodies like all of that stuff is is important because it context like in some ways the book is just as much about our own bodies and what it is to be human as it is about God's body um and so I think that's what most interests me is the way in which you can find these parallels and these sorts of these weird juxtapositions that actually help you to understand ancient cultures and these ancient societies much more clearly. It definitely, it definitely, definitely works. And and when you're writing something like this, are you, do you have uh, do you have an audience in mind, or are you are you trying to broaden out so that it's you can sell as many copies as possible, <laughs> or are you you know because it's a very, it is a very academic book and it is you know it is there's there's good thinking in there and it's turning around a whole uh, you know school of thought about the bible which sort of is an so it's an incredible revolutionary book but it is also something i think that people can pick up in in an airport if they if they're going on a long holiday it's not a short book no, no I mean, god's god's not a short man so yeah <laughs> but like but yeah like so i had two it's, i think being an academic is really weird because you have to because you know you know most of the time i write for other academics and so yeah um, you're kind of joining a conversation that's been going on in my field for centuries and you're joining it at a certain level. Whereas writing this, obviously, you can't expect that anybody would know anything about the, the Bible. Um, so on the one hand, I've got a load of academics sitting on my shoulder when I'm writing and I'm terrified about what they're going to say because being an atheist <laughs> and a woman in my field is really hard anyway. Um, and and so it's, you know, and people, there's a lot of intellectual snobbery as well in academia. So a lot of other academics would not deign to lower themselves to write a book for for the ordinary educated member of the public. Um, so on one hand, I've got all these academics sitting on my shoulder and I'm writing. And then on the other, I've got my mum and my undergraduates. So I'm thinking that they're the people that I'm writing for. If I can explain it sufficiently so that they get it and they understand, then I know that I'm I'm communicating the ideas well. Yeah. And these the, these books can break through, obviously, into a mass audience as well. You know, they they they're even quite uh, academic physics books and uh, history books can can break through. So, and I hope that, you know, I really hope this has done and will continue to do. Uh, it's also very enjoyable. I'm an audio book fan. And I listen to most of this on audio, but they also have the have a copy of the book. Um, but um, uh, you did it yourself as well, which is is not so usual. But did you enjoy the process of doing that? No, it was awful it was so horrendous <laughs> that that's not thinking why the hell did I write such a bloody long book yeah because it, it yeah it was but and also because I <laughs> it's so hard not to do voices like not to do the voices when I was <laughs> so you're reading these biblical texts and often it's like you know Yahweh says this and God says yeah. that 
And and it's so hard to to not kind of slide into whoa 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 <laughs> when I'm doing Yahweh's voice um, and so, something slightly more effeminate for Jesus. And so like <laughs> I'm going to get in so much trouble. <laughs> um, but that was really hard not to do the comedy voices like I yeah. often do in lectures. Um, and you know sliding into little bits of Monty Python kind of style voices as well. You know for like it's really difficult. But yeah, yeah. so doing the audiobook was was hard. Um, well, it was it was fun to hear you. There's lots of sort of sweary bits and sexy bits in it, and it's kind of fun to hear you, you know, saying lots of swear words and stuff. You don't get to, you know, people might enjoy the book just for that. Yeah, for that part. I it's don't. Worth for that alone. That's. I was thinking. I was once um, a guy once <laughs> tweeted me years ago asking for photos of my feet. Um, obviously, I did not. Uh, I did not give him photos of my feet. Um, but I've had a few things like that, and and there are certain points in the book when I thought, you know what, I do get some weird kind of fan mail. Um, and I, there are some bits in this book that I expect some people are quite going to enjoy, but not mm -hmm. for the reasons that I would want them to. Well, yeah, I, I know I did. Yeah, I was so going to say, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so that's good. Uh, but yeah, it, it, it's when it, I, I think the, the thing with the audio books and academic books, I think, is if you, well, all books a little bit, it's, it's, if you lose the chain of thought, that's the great thing about having a book is you can go back and work out who's who. And so with it, it but I think this book, you know, it was, I main even though I'm walking my dog and think you go off and start thinking about something else, but I, but it did work as an audio book, which I think is a is a is a great compliment because I think when something's this um, complicated, it's quite hard to you know to keep your listener engaged and also just in there. So it's it's worth buying as an audio book if you're an audio audio book fan. How many days did it take to record this audio book? Oh God, it felt like I was in the recording studio. I did it last <laughs> summer, and it felt like I was there like every single day. I think it took two weeks. Right, like yeah. doing four hours a day for two weeks. No, that's that's long. I try. I I would do a little bit. I do a little bit longer day, but yeah, I I, I I don't know how long that would take me. My my books usually take a couple of days to do, but they're not. They're nothing compared to this. Um, although I've got, I've just finished my latest book. I've just uh, sent in the not quite final, but hopefully final copy. Uh, and I do quote. You I do quote, quote your book in my book. Do you? Thank yeah, you. So I'm talking about. It's all about testicles, my book. So uh, oh yeah, it's talking about the Sumerian stuff, which uh, about Enki. Oh, Enki creating. masturbating and yeah, yeah, which, yeah. Uh, but then also the uh, fruct, the oh, Yahweh fructifying with uh, the oh, earth of yeah. Israel, and, yeah, uh, and having sex. So yeah, so thank you for that. So you are, you know, you've given me an academic, an extra academic level to my mainly bawdy book about testicles, but. Um, <laughs> so there, you know, there is, there is, there's lots of fun stuff in this, and obviously, uh, we, I think last time we did talk about uh, God's penis, which obviously comes uh, comes up, yeah. the coming of the Lord comes up a lot. I, I was also enjoyed uh, God's bum makes an appearance. I didn't know he would necessarily have a bum. Yeah, I mean, but the thing is, yeah, like, yeah. look at the Sistine Chapel. Michelangelo paints God's bum. I mean, his bum, yeah, right. you know, Michelangelo was he was pretty good on his biblical texts. Um, yeah, but God's bum makes an appearance and, you know, did God defecate or not? And did Jesus defecate or not? And did Moses defecate or not? I mean, people were obsessed for quite a few centuries about whether whether divine divine figures actually defecated. Um, so, yeah, there's a lot of stuff and the shit gods obviously um, are in there. So, yeah. Do you think, do you think, do you think God defecated? Because that it would be odd to have all the system. If he's got a bum hole, my son's obsessed with bum holes. And he asked me if goats have bum holes, but I think equally you could ask if God has a bum hole, because that implies he, you know, eats food and 
Yeah, and, yeah. And they, they, you, you think he does, right? You think he eats food and, and so he would need to get rid of his food. I suspect so. But, I mean, so on the one hand, God's dad, Ale, we've got this myth about him defecating. I mean, he gets so drunk that he literally shits himself, um, yeah. <laughs> pisses himself. Um, so you'd imagine that if, if you know, those, if Ale, his dad could do that, then theoretically so could Yahweh. But Yahweh, but the biblical writers, they're very happy about the idea of the god Baal defecating. But they they don't they stop themselves kind of thinking that their own deity could. But then you know you just because you've got a bumhole, so to speak, doesn't mean to yeah. say that you could defecate. So in, with all the early Christian debates about Jesus and whether he did or not, people would say some very eminent theologians, Christian thinkers, would argue that yes, um, Jesus did eat food properly, but he was miraculously constipated because they didn't like the idea of Jesus producing what they basically called corrupted matter, so shit mm. basically. So they said that he could control his body so much that he he could eat whatever he wanted, but had no need to defecate. Hmm. Hmm. Well, you know, but it's possible. He could have just defecated something nice. It could have just changed it into flower petals or something. Yeah, and some people did argue that. They sort of basically okay. said that he defecated kind of almost like a kind of a, a perfumed ungent. Um, <laughs> so some people did. <laughs> um well i I don't don't want to like go too much into the the detail of all the 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 different bits and pieces just because um you know i want people to be able to read the book and and find that stuff out but uh you do basically all the body parts get a get a mention right down to uh, genitalia and hands and feet um and uh, I i think all that stuff about the um uh, the holy of holies in those early temples is very interesting where they where there's there's sort of the idea was that the god actually whoever's god and who, whichever god you was yours for your tribe sort of lived in inside that holy of holies so he w- was actually not just a, a body but was a body who was who was there so those footprints that we talked about that was they're made to look like he's he's walked in or yeah, like the deity, like literally striding into the temple. I mean, it is yeah, amazing, yeah. and that is very much the sense. I think there's something that, you know, an atheist that I am, I think there's something that's lost from a lot of modern day religions is the sense that somehow these sacred buildings simply represent the place at which you can have some kind of formal communication with your deity. Because in in you know, back in the day, this these places literally were where the deity was was held to be. You were in literally in the presence of the deity, and I think that's an amazing thing like you know you you get that kind of it's almost as if again I am this cold stone-hearted atheist but you know going somewhere like Stonehenge or into ancient you know very ancient churches or some of these early temples and stuff you, you you do kind of get a sense that these are more than just ordinary places that these are somehow um yeah otherworldly in some way and I think it's a real shame that you know that people don't make more of that in their own religions. So, you know, I, I think I'd, yeah. I'd be a lot more interesting, interested in, in being a believer if if someone said to me, the deity is actually here. I mean, and not just in, you know, bread and wine, as in yeah. behind this person. Well, I would believe it if I went in and I saw him. So, you know, that's that's what I, that's that's what it would take for me. But um, and why do you think why do you think this out of all these potential desert gods and all these different areas? What was it? Is it just chance that this one is? The one that's that's dominated, or is it? Is there some reason why Yahweh kind of appealed more? Or is it just that you know some brilliant publicist, or is it? Because they because it was basically the temple was destroyed, right? And he was and, and yeah, it was destroyed and, his temple, his temple. and then rebuilt. So it's destroyed in the sixth century BCE. 
yeah. in Jerusalem, then rebuilt in the 5th century BCE, and then finally destroyed again by the Romans in the 1st century CE. So um, in some ways, it's in some ways it's chance that it was this particular deity that that happened to be um, become the most important, simply because this happened to be the deity who became sort of the patron god of this Judahite community, you know, whose whose central temple was in Jerusalem. Um, but I think because of the relationship, because Christianity emerged out of Judaism, and because of the importance of text, the idea that somehow texts became authoritative so once you've got a religion that's writing its stuff down and the texts themselves become not just authoritative in terms of teaching but become iconic they literally become iconic they replace statues of the gods so the the scrolls within you know pre-christianity the scrolls of judaism become sort of almost function like a statue of a god would have functioned in the older forms of yahweh worship and then gradually you know with the emergence of christianity um texts became really important for kind of spreading that particular inflection of judaism around because obviously you know the jesus movement was a jewish movement so texts become important for kind of communicating that around the mediterranean and once you know and once it's around the roman roman empire and, and it becomes kind of adopted officially so they say um mm. as the re, the religion of the roman empire then then obviously it, it's it's gonna this god is is firmly implanted in the west as as the the deity um but do you think do you think way back in you know before two thousand three thousand years before Christ, if a different if just a, like a different battle had turned out differently, or a, do you think it could have been a different god, or do you think this was it was there was something special, particularly? That I don't think he was particularly special, but I think the fact that he got rid of his pantheon very early on, yeah. I think the fact that he got rid of his wife early on, I think the fact that it became a very masculinist. Um, patriarchal kind of I think I think that is one of the reasons why people are so keen <laughs> to hang on to it because um yeah so I uh, yeah men yeah it's, it's down to men and power good that's good to know well done to us uh and and uh, I mean I suppose the, the the holy trinity thing which is also discussed the father the son uh, the, the the father the son the holy ghost which I'd never really understood but that again is another attempt to to bring together just th- these all these different ideas and smash them together so he can be a he can be corporal and not corporal and uh, alive and not alive and here and not here. That exactly. So like I think there's there's lots of things going on with the the idea of the Trinity. I mean, it's not in the Bible itself. It's not in the New Testament. The only thing that's in the New Testament is Jesus saying um, in in the Gospels he instructs his disciples to go out and baptize in the name of the Father and the Son and the Spirit. So that's what the earliest Jesus followers were doing. They were baptizing new members into their guild, like by means of this three-part formula. So by the time, like you know, so people think, well, is this are these three different deities, or are these you know what's going on? So by the time you get the early kind of church fathers agonizing about this and trying to insist that they are still monotheistic, even though they blatantly look polytheistic, um, so they kind of invent, they come up with a notion of you know they sort of try to describe how the Trinity is in fact one in three and three in one. And yeah. you're quite right. It, it's it's um, it is illogical. Um, <laughs> theological philosophy is illogical. Um, but on the other hand, you've also got this sense in which, like Christianity, is also keen. You know, if Jesus hadn't been properly human, then he couldn't have properly died, which means that he couldn't have properly, you know, resurrected. So the insistence that Jesus had to be fully human and fully God was so important that it rendered 
everything about a divine body, about the bodiliness of the divine, it rendered it almost like it had to be exclusive to Christianity alone. Otherwise, yeah. this miraculous event of God becoming for flesh incarnate, dying, and then rising up again is 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 meaningless. It's nothing. And yeah. so I think it's it's that particular emphasis on the idea that Christians had to have the the exclusive claim on kind of divine corporeality, like that it was their God. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I think that's one of the reasons why they philosophically and culturally speaking they were so keen to dismiss the idea that god had ever had a body before that yeah but obviously the texts say something different yeah well it's it's absolutely fascinating i do encourage everyone uh to to buy this book uh and have a read it's very interesting stuff um does is is this something like just in turn because i usually ask about how you get something published and stuff but obviously like an academic book or a, a book from an academic is sort of slightly different maybe it's kind of hard to just write write an academic book and send it in is it is it did, did was this something you how long were you working on it and and how easy was it to find a publisher for it or was it the other way around um it's weird because yeah I've written a lot of academic monographs and books and yeah. stuff like that and they're kind of relatively easy to get published because you don't get paid for them um <laughs> which is amazing so like <laughs> academic press is like yeah fine <laughs> but um but this book was different I was approached by my now agent my literary agent who had um he he had seen me on various TV things and had written to me saying, I think you should write a book for the, for, you know, for the ordinary reader. And I was like, don't be ridiculous. I can't do that. I'm an academic. Like, well, I, I can't write in a way that's in, <laughs> interesting and, and intelligent and kind of entertaining. Um, but then I thought, actually, maybe I could do that. And so, yeah, like it was a very different process, like try, getting it published. It was it was great. I mean, that we had it went into one of those competitive publishers bidding high amounts okay. of money to have it, which was amazing. Um, yeah. But writing it is the hardest thing I've ever written in my life. Like, as I said, I've written loads of academic books and fine, I can do those until the cows come home. But this was so hard because I was trying to communicate really complex scholarly ideas and research and debates, trying to communicate that in a way that's not boring and is not off-putting and isn't dumbing down either. Yeah. That is so hard. So it took me took me longer to write than I thought it would like I, I started writing in year one and realized I hadn't actually written anything at all <laughs> like literally hadn't <laughs> written anything <laughs> I sort of done a lot of sunbathing that year and thinking about how am I going to write this um but then yeah like so it took about four years and obviously Covid didn't yeah. help um just in terms of getting a lot of the stuff that I needed for research that was really yeah. hard but yeah but I've I it was the hardest thing I it's the hardest thing I've ever written but I loved it like it, I loved yeah. it yeah and is that you do? Have you got another book? Is there, are there more lined up? Have you got another one? Yeah, there's another one time? coming, but I haven't quite decided um, okay. enough about it yet to talk about it. But yeah, there's there's another one coming. Great. Um, well, look, uh, thanks so much for giving us uh, so much of your time and talking about your fantastic book, God and Anatomy, Francesca Stavrakopoulou. You've got to change your you've got to change your name so it's more. It's Do you know what? I know, stuff. I know. I got married a few months ago, and um, oh, yes. and my husband said, "Thank you." And my husband said, "Are you going to change your name?" I said, "Of course, I'm not going to change my name." <laughs> and then, and I said, "Would you like to take my name instead?" And he said, "Don't be ridiculous. You know, your name is absolutely... <laughs> yeah." So the name stays, but and I no, know it's good, it, it's it terrifies everybody. But um, but you did. You, you're super good at it. I know, I love it. Oh, I do love it really. <laughs> the second the Francesca's hard. You've got to change to Francesca. Yeah. Change that to something easier to say, and that will be that will be very good. Uh look, thank you very much, Francesca, for doing this. Thank you to uh, Chris Evans, not that one, for 
all his help on this. And happy birthday. It's his birthday today, Francesca, and he's sitting there listening to this. I know. Happy birthday. He'll be all confused by it. <laughs> what have you done? You know, he won't understand what's going on. Um, do go and buy Francesca's book. We'll be back next week. I don't know who's the next book club's going to be. So we'll. that's a very exciting thing to find out. Thank you very much. See you next time. Bye.